0: Wes is the Member of Parliament for Ilford North Uh, when we invited him to do uh, this podcast he was actually uh, in the shadow treasury team for the Labour Party Uh, but as recently as I think it was Friday Wes uh, you've uh, you've got yourself a new job as shadow minister for schools so first of all congratulations and secondly uh, what does that role entail?
1: Yeah, thanks, Frank. No, I'm I'm delighted. I mean, I've 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 very much enjoyed being part of Annalisa Dodd's Shadow Treasury team um, for the last six months, and prior to that, as you know, I was on the Treasury Committee of the House of Commons for five years, so um, doing lots of work on economic policy. But as of last Friday, um, I was asked to become Shadow Minister for Schools, so um, but basically responsible for. Um, Pretty much every aspect of policy affecting schools—you know, admissions, curriculum, um, attainment, examinations—and obviously there's a lot going on, particularly in COVID. But there's also a lot that's been going on for some time now in terms of educational disadvantage in our country. And as someone who grew up on free school meals, went to state school, um, you know, there's no doubt that the state education I received has changed my life and has helped me to go from being a kid on a council estate to a member of Parliament. And you know fundamentally to be honest before i became an mp um education and tackling educational inequality um was where i spent my career working before i became an mp so um i am i'm i did i must admit when um, when i first got the call saying we're, we're thinking of moving you to schools what do you think um i mean it was a no-brainer for me because I, i'm you know my passion for education but it was just tinged a bit with sadness because i've actually very much enjoyed working for Annalisa dodds and bridget phillips and the shadow treasury team um, but um, there'll be no doubt loads going on in, in the economy and plenty of ways that I can support from, from the back rather than the front.
0: And in the end, Wes, you have got a passion for education. It comes across in uh, many of the things that you've written and certainly the conversation we had a few months ago. It It, it is something that, as I say, you're passionate about. Uh, what are the sort of things that y- you would hope to, to bring to the role? What are the sort of... Policy uh, changes and ideas uh, do you want to be presenting uh, in the coming months and years?
1: So, I mean, as with most things at the moment, COVID dominates the conversation there. And as we saw with the GCSE and A levels debacle, um, there, there are real challenges facing schools in terms of funding, in terms of keeping pupils and teachers safe, the extent to which it's um, causing disruption as teachers and pupils are taken out of school with um, positive tests or isolating because members of their households have had positive tests Uh, so there are real challenges there um, that will kind of dominate a lot of my time I think in the coming weeks in particular but beyond that I mean really what I want the next Labour government to do is to rewrite the story of educational disadvantage in our country Uh, it is still the case that too many children arrive at school at the age of five already lagging behind their peers on literacy and numeracy if they're from poorer backgrounds, and in too many cases that effectively caps their life chances and predetermines where they end up at that point. At GCSE, we've seen the attainment gap widening between those from the wealthiest backgrounds and those from the poorest backgrounds, um, and and you know so fundamentally we're moving in the in the wrong direction. Mm. There are lots of things that hold children and young people back. And education isn't the only way in which we can try and create a more fair and just society where young people can grow up and be who they are and end up where they want to get to based on their talent rather than their background. But education is the closest thing we have to a silver bullet. And the last Labour government made huge strides in terms of tackling educational deprivation and disadvantage. We pumped huge resources in schools, which literally rebuilt schools, but also um, invested in high quality teaching, high quality school leadership. I mean, London, the city that I've grew up in and represent, the, 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 the contrast between the schools of Tower Hamlets when I was growing up there and where we got to by the end of that Labour government was a remarkable transformation. But I do feel like in England, we've been slipping backwards Um, and we can't allow that to happen, and to be honest, during the pandemic, education has felt like an afterthought for the government, Um, and I I just think that's criminal, really, because loads of those young people sitting, particularly GCSEs and A-levels, you don't get a second chance to do that, Um, and, um, you know, of course, people can do things like resits, but fundamentally, you know, it, it really does hold you back if you're let down at that stage, so I want to make sure that this academic year, we don't fail young people in the same way. But as I say, beyond COVID, I think we've got to make sure that education is a number one priority for the Labour Party. Because as Keir Starmer said in his recent speech to our virtual conference, he wants Britain to be the best place to grow up in and the best place to grow old in. And education is absolutely central to that vision.
0: Hmm. Uh, And Wes, I'll move on to the economy uh, and where we are in terms of the COVID-19 situation in a moment but one final point on education Uh, i'm sure you'll be aware because you speak to businesses every day of the week that that frustration that that many of us have in the world of commerce that we can't get the people that we need in terms of the skill sets required and part of that has to be a failure of not just schools but the wider education training skills Um, facilities, products that are available out there. If I had one criticism of the last Labour government around the education piece, it was this drive to get everybody into university. Uh, I think we're starting to uh, accept evidence around the fact that sometimes vocational training, as long as it's of the necessary quality, can actually be as valuable uh, as getting a, a traditional degree if I can put it that way. Any thoughts around that?
1: Yeah, I strongly supported the 50% target under the last Labour government because I think it helped to transform a mindset that um, enabled more young people to go to university, more mature students to go to university, but also more working class kids to go to university. Um, And that was really important in terms of raising aspirations, raising attainment, and sort of getting um, working class students into our universities. I think the big weakness, though, was that there wasn't as strong uh, a vision and an argument and clear pathways for what's been described as the other 50%. University isn't going to be the right path for everyone. Um, and I think that's partly about making sure that we've got, as you state, high quality routes available, um, making sure that those routes are um, held in high esteem by employers and by um, students and their families. I mean, I've always joked that, you know, we had a widening participation to get more working class kids to university. We probably need a widening participation agenda to get more old Etonians to go and do an apprenticeship. Um, uh, But it is a a cultural problem in this country. If you look at countries like Germany, which is often held up as the example, you know, um, vocational education is not seen as some sort of second order achievement or second tier it is highly valuable um so you know and, and the other thing point i'd make is and with, i think we'll see this writ large during this recession that we're um that we're about to live through is lifelong learning is also really important um, it's important for people who've just lost their jobs and might need to reskill and retrain but also if you think about the longer term future and the fact we're going to be living longer probably working longer, we've got technology changing the world of work in really significant ways and ways that are presently unimaginable. We are all going to need to keep our skills up to date and and that's where lifelong learning I think really comes into its own Um, and of course you know there is a fundamental value in education in and of itself and education for its own sake and passing the collective body of, of human knowledge.
0: There are going to be many people who are displaced from employment many people who perhaps find fewer and fewer opportunities in industry, employed them for the last decade.
1: On lifelong learning as well. Um, And the chancellor needs to act on that very quickly. I mean, that's why we called for 3 billion pounds of spending that he'd committed through the national skills strategy to be brought forward. Um, Because he needs to get that money out the door pretty quickly to make sure that opportunities are there so that you know because i can tell you there is nothing worse than finding yourself unemployed and maybe running a small business and you've been excluded from any of the government support schemes so far as well and then seeing the chancellor pop up on the telly talking about reskilling and retraining and you're pulling your hair out saying well reskill where retrain to do what help you know I'll- I need to get back to work. Where are the pathways? And I think we've got really big gaps there and they need to be filled very quickly because there are going to be a lot of people out there um, experiencing already um, real hardship and misery. And there are only going to be more of those people, I fear, in the coming months because of the way in which this pandemic is shaping out.
0: Mm. The the disappointing thing for me was about the Kickstart programme for young people that was announced by the government uh, was, again, this... Lack of recognition of how important the SME community is to the business ecosystem, and so for a business like mine, for example, you, you know I'm desperately uh, wanting to give something back, and we are in a fortunate position that the company, despite the challenges we face, is growing. But you've got to take on at least thirty people to get involved in that kickstart program. Now, we formed consortia with the, the City of Liverpool College in, in Liverpool, but that doesn't help us in Manchester, Birmingham, Leeds, other places that were based. Uh, and, and again, you've got to go then through bureaucracy, red tape. Any chance that the opposition could put a bit of pressure uh, on the Chancellor? I think sometimes unintended consequences emerge from these policies because, as I say, there's lots of small businesses, Wes, who would not only be grateful of the opportunity to take on young person and train them but there would be a job at the end of it and, and again as I say that's training with a purpose and I think we've cut out a whole group of companies who would have been able to assist in that regard.
1: Yeah I agree with that and and actually in a lot of SMEs they'll be getting the sort of hands-on experience and the ability to do a range of things. And develop a range of skills that will serve them really well in terms of their long, longer term careers as well because you know anyone who's worked in small business will tell you you know you don't have you know the hr department over here and the finance department over here and the sales team over, you know everyone has to do a bit of everything because you know you, you, you don't you, you don't have like that large um or you know res- resource base so you've got a real opportunity there to kind of try a hand at a number of things and to, and to learn a number of different things. So, um, I mean, that will be part of the value of the Kickstarter scheme, but... I agree with you, the bureaucracy is in the way of SAE um, a consortium with, with, with um, the college in Liverpool, um, but there might be a lot of business owners who are logging on thinking, great, I'll have one of these Kickstarter, You know, uh, young people, and then thinking actually the bureaucracy of this is too much time. It's too much hassle. I haven't got the time Um, because that's the other thing as well. You know, people are really busy running their businesses. Their businesses are probably already struggling enough throughout all of this. So the idea you have to jump through loads of hoops and start, you know, casting the net looking for partners. It's it's added bureaucracy, Um, and and you know, I, I I can understand why from a government perspective they want fewer agencies and organizations to deal with but you know what's convenient for the government um you know I-, I think there's a real question to be asked about that as to whether or not the scheme will deliver the sorts of outcomes that the government really needs it to and they may end up um finding themselves they're sort of you know the old pennywise pound foolish um kind of notion you know they're sort of cutting corners in some respects to try and cut down their bureaucracy, but they may find the costs of doing so are much bigger because there are more young people completely out of work and there are small businesses that could benefit from this scheme in a really meaningful way who who won't participate.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Wes, uh, moving on to where we are at the moment with uh, the coronavirus challenge, and it's it's a movable feast. I'm reading this morning that, you know, Andy Burnham has been in overnight I was going to say negotiations, not really. He's had a letter from the government basically saying sign up or we're going to impose those Tier 3 restrictions on Greater Manchester. Uh, I know London is is moved into Tier 2 now, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. Uh, and Liverpool have been in Tier 3 along with Lancashire since last week. Um, I'm sure you're sensing uh, from the north of England uh, an awful lot of frustration, if not anger, at the way in which these restrictions are happening. It's not as if we uh, are are less bothered about saving lives in this part of the world, but we don't seem to be getting any evidence, Wes, that local lockdowns work. Indeed, I think uh, Labor produced a document to suggest that in 19 of the 20 places where local lockdowns had taken place, it hadn't had a fundamental impact on the COVID infection rates. And so I think you know, Andy Burnham, Sir Graham Brady, let's not make this a party political thing in Greater Manchester. The political leaders there have been absolutely right in saying to the government, well, if you're going to lock us down under what are fairly draconian measures, I have to say, demonstrate to us the evidence that that lockdown is going to have a genuine effect.
1: Yeah, I think there are two problems here. Everyone is willing to do the right thing to help beat coronavirus. But people want to know two things. One... Is it going to work and is the pain worth the hassle um and secondly if we're going to do the right thing are we going to receive the support we need from government to do it and i think that's where andy burnham and as you say it's not just andy it's political leaders across greater manchester labour and conservative mps um and local councillors all on the same page of asking government those two central questions and to be honest i can't believe we're in this position where there just isn't a default support package in place so that you know just as you've got you know if you're in tier two these are the restrictions and there should also be and here here's the government support that you can access um and that should be consistent it should be standard it shouldn't be down to andy sort of basically holding government's feet to the fire and saying i need this support for greater manchester and i'm not going to set anything less you know there should be consistent support in place so that we need this kind of wrangling and again I think the government is very short-sighted about this I mean in T three there are lots of businesses that have just been closed through no fault of their own they are closed not running and port you doesn't even scratch the surface in terms of you know people's wages their overheads and so let's not forget the cost of reopening I mean, take, I mean, everyone talks about hospitality, office for example, um, if, you're, if you're a restaurant that's been made to close, when you're reopening again, it's just a case of opening your door and switching the lights on, you have to order a whole new load of stock, you have loads of perishable goods that you, you, you wouldn't sold, so you've just completely written off that cost, um, and, you know, it, 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 I just sometimes think that policymakers aren't putting themselves in the shoes of people who actually run businesses, and and the sort of the practical things that they're going to be worried about, and of course, people who are now off work and absolutely terrified about how they're going to pay their bills. So they've got the government's got to fix the government's got to fix that. In tier two, um, you know as you' as you'll know, having been through it and and uh, huge parts of the country have now been through tier two, a lot of businesses are open in name only. So they're still allowed to trade. They've got all the costs involved of coming in, switching the lights on, putting people um, to work. But they haven't got the customers coming through the door Um, because funnily enough, um, you know, a lot of people, whether it's going shopping or, you know, um, going out for, for a meal or going out for drinks, often it's a social activity and you do it with people outside your own household. And particularly the other thing is about consumer confidence is as people are seeing all these new measures kicking in it is denting their own confidence to go out and spend money. So even where people are able to go out and spend money and might want to go out and spend money, they're thinking, well, oh, actually, if I lose my job, better put some money away in the savings. Um, you know, can we really, do we really, do we really need it? Do we really want it? Do we, you know, let's save for a rainy day so we don't know what's going to happen. And so I think there are real issues there around consumer confidence as well. So all in all, this isn't working. I mean, you might have seen Labour's called for a national circuit break, lockdown. That's what the independent SAGE um, Government Advisory Committee um, has called for. And although I understand why people might kind of go, all national lockdown, is that really necessary? How much will that cost? I think we've all got to bear in mind the cost of inaction and proceeding with a failed strategy. And if we lock down the way we did before, national lockdown, economic support to go with it, um, and then came back, I think it, it would not only set back the spread of the virus, it would buy us some extra time that we need and would also potentially save us a hell of a lot um, in, of pain in the long run, both in terms of loss of life and people's livelihood. So um, I think the chancellor needs to ask himself some pretty hard questions about how much the cost of failure is going to cost him and the treasury.
0: I'm back on, sorry about that. Right, just bear with me a second. Dear the, the joys of modern technology.
1: I know, it's um, not all it's cracked up to be, is it? I was just saying to Heather, I was like staring at the screen blankly, thinking, have I frozen? Is he frozen?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I'm having problems this morning. It's what happens when you go into tier three, where you, You've got all <laughs> this. this, 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 this. Um, listen, just, just, you've talked there about you know, a, a circuit breaking a national lockdown. I, I can see some advantages to that. First and foremost, uh, and this shouldn't be underestimated in a United Kingdom, I don't think. At least people would think there was some consistency and fairness. Uh, and I do think places like Greater Manchester, Liverpool, Lancashire feeling somewhat discriminated at the moment because, as I say, the evidence doesn't seem to, to, to stack up. Um, But I am concerned, increasingly concerned, Wes, about the damage this is doing to the economy. Uh, And and you can't put hospitality in a box. I think that's the other mistake the government are making. They're saying, OK, if we close you, there's some help available. We can argue whether the help's enough or not, but there's some help available. But as you've rightly pointed out there, consumer confidence now is through the floor. So if you're a retail outfit... You've not been ordered to close by the government. You stay open. If you do close, there's no help available for you. And then I could go on right through the ecosystem of business. We've got to have, if we do lockdown, an infrastructure and a support mechanism that matches what was in place back in March, April time. Mm.
1: Yeah, and I think you're right about unintended consequences. I heard a radio report just the other week about... Um, turkey sales um, and the, and f- farmers being really worried about the number of orders they've had on turkeys from some of the big retailers and butchers um, because they're planning for a drop in, in Christmas orders because people aren't sure whether they're going to um, be able to get together for the big family dinner in the way they normally would. Um, I think it's a question all families are currently asking themselves at the moment, you know, what, what we're going to be doing over the Christmas period um, Uh, you know and so there are going to be all of these unintended consequences and of course you know it all works as an ecosystem one of the reasons why um, central London has really struggled in terms of its economy is because theatre land is closed and there are loads of people who when they go for the go to theatre will pop you know go for a meal go for some drinks might even pop into the shops and make a sort of an afternoon or you know a day out of it so you know let's not pretend that um, parts of the economy are working in silos, and that they're not interconnected. Because you know, whether it's you know the, the sort of the retail um, and and hospitality, entertainment ecosystem, the wider supply chain issues, that there are really there are really serious challenges here. Um, and unlike and, and, and you, I am really worried about sort of the economic impact of this, because this also has a direct impact on our public health, on mental health, people's well-being. Um, I'm very, very worried about sort of where we're getting to on all of this. And of course, this is the balancing act um, that that, the government has to wrestle with. And we're wrestling with as well, because when Keir announced the circuit breaker call, he didn't do that lightly. I mean, as people have noticed, and we've even been criticised for it at points, we have tried really hard to work constructively with the government to not deviate from the government, especially when they're following the scientific evidence because we don't, we've never thought throughout this pandemic, it's helpful to have political leaders on different pages and saying different things because it confuses the message, it uh, potentially reduces compliance with important measures. But we felt the government had diverged from the scientific evidence, we felt that both the consequences for public health and the economic pain would be greater as a result. Um, but we'll have to see if we can persuade the government to, to sort of do otherwise. Um, because the other, the other thing we've got hanging around in the background is as we get further into winter, um, you know, the NHS always has challenges with winter pressures. We always have an NHS winter crisis. If you layer on top of that a Covid um, pandemic where there are more hospitalisations, that that's potentially very worrying territory. And let's not forget in all of this, the reason why we did the lockdown initially it wasn't just about saving lives, it was about protecting the NHS and it was about saying, look, you know, we, we will treat you, but the NHS can't cope if we're overwhelmed. And I don't think we should lose sight of that dimension in all of this either.
0: Mm. I, I, it baffles me as well, Wes, and I don't want to come across as, as just, you know, government bashing here, because as you've recognised, this is a unique set of circumstances. No political leader, no prime minister would want to be having to cope with this sort of crisis, and it's been difficult and challenging, and we recognised it. But you say there we did the initial lockdown to protect the NHS, and we're being told now, likewise, our intensive care beds, for example, are being filled, and we've got... I'm looking at the investment that was made in that six months, and I'm looking at, for example, Eat Out to Help Out. And I'm wondering why that money wasn't used to improve infrastructure in our hospitals, employ more nursing staff, employ more care workers. It it seems to me that this isn't a strategy that we've got in place. This is finger in the wind stuff. And and that's what's frustrating me. And and listen, people are aware of my politics. uh, And I'm happily say that I'll support the Labour Party by and large, but I'm critical when I think I need to be critical. I was certainly critical of the last Labour Party leader. But I don't know what the end game here is, Wes. So if we get through this winter crisis and we reopen, let's say, February, let's let's take as long as that, but then we have another spike do we just continually have these lockdowns? It's not sustainable. Yeah, I, I, in and opinion.
1: I think a lot of us have been feeling miserable. I mean, it's 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 interesting when when the tier two restrictions kicked in, um, where I live, uh, it, I wasn't quite ready for the sort of the psychological impact of that in terms of you know the things that I had to cancel, the friends I was going to go and see, the family that I was going to go and see, and it just, just psychologically it just feels like you've just been set back and we're moving in the wrong direction, you start to think, well, how long is it now until we're in tier three? And of course, you know, I mean, I didn't say that too loudly on the media last week, because frankly, when London went into lockdown, most of the country was saying, welcome to our world. Now you can have a piece of our action. We all bloody hate you. Um, so, <laughs> so I have to kind of always keep that in mind as a sort of London. I, I always say, uh, I mean, it depends on who I'm talking to. I mean, technically I'm a greater London MP, but when I talk to people around the rest of the country, I tend to emphasize the fact that Ilford is technically in Essex. So <laughs> <laughs> try and- I'm to that London, um, but um, but no, But more seriously um, I think people do want to see that there is um, a strategy they want to know where we're going they, they know it's not going to be perfect and they know that ultimately we need a vaccine but people just want a, a bit of clarity about the, the direction and where we're heading um, and, and that's really what what's missing at the moment and why I think you know the, the circuit breaker for us wasn't just about setting back the virus also about saying let's reset the strategy let's provide some clarity of leadership let's get the test track and isolate system working because that is a, is a fundamental problem and just going back to what you were saying about um eat out to help out um i, I think rishi sunak was given a lot of plaudits at the very beginning of this crisis because of the scale of the response which matched the scale of the challenge. So we had the furlough scheme, self-employment income support scheme and not only did we welcome those things, we actively encouraged the government to do those things and the government sat down with trade unions, business leaders. It was a very collaborative approach and he was lauded for it and he deserved the credit. But a number of interventions he's announced since feel very gimmicky. So, um, I mean, I thought the job retention bonus was a good example where HMRC had said, we're not convinced this is going to have the desired effect of of actually bringing more workers back from furlough than otherwise would have been laid off. Um, They described it as a deadweight cost, but he went ahead with it. Um, And there are other examples of sort of government waste um, and, and things that they're spending money on where you think, is that really the greatest priority? I mean, in Parliament this week, we're having another argument about whether or not we should feed hungry children during the school holidays. And Marcus Rashford has had to kind of get back into his campaigning gear again because, you know, he's seen this problem coming. We've seen this problem coming and the government is, just, is refusing to budge. And you think, well, how much did the government spend subsidising people who are well off enough to go out for a meal? Um, during the summer for eat out to help out but we're not going to feed children who are literally at risk of going hungry during the school holidays it's a question of priorities um, and, and we, we will continue to challenge the government on that and I think Rishi Sunak has got to go back to the sort of collaborative um, evidence-led approach that he seemed to have at the beginning of this crisis and not go for the gimmicks because that's where I think we get you know wasted resources and it is breeding resentment i mean i've been spending time talking to people in my own constituency and across the country who haven't received a penny of government support at all since april The excluded and they are absolutely i mean it's not just that they're angry they are really frightened about how they're going to manage and so when you kind of see government ads saying eat out to help out they're kind of saying well how am i going to afford to eat in and when you see the government saying what a great job they're doing or, or you know, they're spending billions here and HMRC saying, well, that's a waste of money. They're thinking, well, we, we could have some of that. Six billion pounds would have made a, a real difference to us. So, um, you know, we're going to be holding the government to to account on that as well and challenging them on, on value for money and where they're spending their money.
0: Mm. Now, Wes, we were going to keep you for a little longer this morning, but this Internet connection today for some reason is very unstable and I don't want to keep... Uh, getting kicked out of this and and, uh, and frustrating you and I know you've got lots of things to be getting on with so if anybody has got a question put it in the chat room for Wes uh, and we'll put it soon quickly but final point from me uh, and it's a more general point really uh, back in December um, Conservative government won a, a massive majority of 80 uh, and you know I, I think not to put it too Uh, Too cruelly, Labour Party looked dead and buried. Um, A week's a long time in politics, uh, certainly nine months, there's been a total transformation uh, of the opposition. I think Keir Starmer is demonstrating a more pragmatic approach to politics that is winning him many plaudits, and rightly so. Um, But from your part of the the world, uh, I'm sure you're sensing that uh, perhaps one or two people uh, are having buyer's remorse in those red wall seats. Nevertheless, uh, there's still an awful long way to go. We're four years from a, the next general election. a Big uphill battle for, for Labour to get back into government. Well, the sort of strategic steps, Wes, that you think... has to take between now and then to continue this uh, trajectory that you've enjoyed in recent months?
1: Um, it, it, got a bit, um, it got a bit messy there on the connection. So I've got most of the question. Um, well, first and foremost, it does help having a leader who looks like and sounds like a credible prime minister. And I think that's reflected in Keir's approval ratings with the public. I think they look at Keir Starmer, they see a serious person who's done a serious job outside politics as Director of Public Prosecutions, is deeply principled, will put the national interest first, and is signalling a new leadership, not just for the Labour Party, but potentially a new leadership for the country, if we're given that chance after the next election. Um, I think you're right about... um, voters who are looking in on the Conservative Party, many of whom who voted Conservative for the first time and are thinking, well, you know, we know exactly why we voted Conservative, but, you know, we are also seeing the worst of the Conservative Party at the moment. Um, But that doesn't mean for a moment that we're complacent uh, and think that we will just win power because the Conservatives are crap. Um, We've got to actively earn back people's trust. And the truth is that... Keir's ratings are fantastic. The party's ratings are still nowhere where they need to be. So we've got a mountain to climb. We started climbing that mountain, um, but we know we've got to earn back trust on the economy, on being trusted with our national security and defence, And, you know, as I I always say, people often know Labour's heart's in the right place. They want to know our head is in the right place, too. So as long as we keep on speaking to the real issues that people care about, as long as we've got practical answers that people can believe in, there is every chance, even with the mountain we've got to climb, that we can win the next general election. As I always say, Labour's got to climb Mount Everest to win the next election. The good news is we know that climbing Everest can be done because it's been done before. So we know it can be done, but it's going to take a hell of a lot of hard work zero complacency on our part and we've got to speak to and for every section of every of every community um, in every part of the country to win
0: okay uh, i'm just going to take this one question from uh, an old friend of yours and mine jim hancock he's asking what uh, labour will do about private schools so an easy one to end with wes
1: <laughs> yes, I- <laughs> I mean, first and foremost, I mean, I, I'm more interested in the education of the 93% and the 7%. 93% of children in this country don't attend private schools. They go to state-funded schools. And fundamentally, my, my focus is about them and how we get the very best education for them. I, 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 there's no doubt in my mind that private education, um, you know, works against equal opportunity in this country. Um, And when when you look at things like university admissions or the dominance of the professions by people from private schools, that is a real challenge. Um, But I I don't think the Labour Party will change that picture if we're just obsessing and talking about and debating 7% of of, of schools that work outside the mainstream system. We've got to be focused on the 93%. And ultimately, you know, I, I want to get to a position where parents you know many of whom by the way when they send their kids to private schools make quite a lot of financial sacrifices to do so I want to get to a point where particularly those parents think well don't need to send my kids to private school because the state school up the road is fantastic and I want my kids to have a comprehensive education alongside children from a wide range of backgrounds um, so that will be my focus the 93% and you know the 7% can take care of themselves I'm sure
0: Wes, I'm awfully sorry for the poor connection this morning, but it's uh, it's, uh-huh. it's not diminished what's been a, a really interesting and uh, detailed contribution from yourself as well in terms of you know education, skills training, but also more importantly the crisis that we face. We do have a uh, a live event with you in London penciled in so I'm keeping everything crossed that, that that can go ahead. I think it's November we've got that. Yeah, so.
1: I'm looking forward to it. Whenever it happens, we'll be looking forward to it. And um and I did tell Annalisa Dodds that I was doing this event with you this morning as well. So um I will certainly uh I'll certainly feedback some of the some of the issues you've raised Frank which you know won't come as a surprise to her but I think it is it's always good just to keep on reminding ourselves and reinforcing um the the, the kind of the key issues that people are talking about. Across the country, because you know, fundamentally, it's our job to make sure that those issues are amplified and resolved here. So, thanks very much for your time and to people who've joined us and people who are listening. You know, do feel free to contact me and keep in touch.
0: Well, it's great to see you as always. Thanks, uh, okay Have a nice day, everyone. Cheers, thanks.